Premium Hoops presents Sense and Scalability. Sense and Mailability? We have a mailbag episode. Hi, Evan. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Um, I just ran upstairs to get my computer charger. Now I'm kind of winded, so I'll just put myself on mute. How you doing, Cody? I'm a little nervous because my podcasting space is the hottest room in my house. And as summer keeps going, it's going to get hotter. And I am not somebody that likes heat. So um, I might fall asleep in the middle of this episode or subsequent episodes. So I will try not to do that. Yeah, I've never posted my setup, but um, if anyone has ever seen my setup, I have like a desktop computer and um, it's not the only computer um, in this room. And it's one of like five screens. We, me and my partner each have two monitors and then we have a TV. And so when stuff is running in here, uh, it gets very hot. And just like you, this is probably the hottest room in my house. So I cracked the window. You might, you guys might hear some nature sounds today. Um, like we're on the golf course. So that'll be relaxing. But yeah, I am, uh, I am somewhat dreading the arrival of the summer just because it is going to be sweaty podcast season. Yeah, I almost respect my co-host of North Station Hoops, Nate, for keeping his fan going in the background. Um, I guess he made it so that he can't really hear it as much. But <laughs> I was like, there was some there's some background noise before we start. He's like, oh, yeah, it's my fan. Then <laughs> he just kept it on. But it actually turned out OK. That's impressive. I definitely have never heard that fan before. I've uh, I've listened to every episode, I promise, but I've definitely never been like, hmm, there is a soft humming in the background of this episode. Well, I mean, that really speaks to the audio engineering level we have at Premium Hoops. We have a lot of questions, hopefully a lot of answers of varying quality. And thank you all for submitting this podcast. And thank you, just people on Twitter are being really nice to us lately. And we love that. Um, I'll try to keep it up. We love doing this podcast. And just, yeah, if you ever want to be nice to us, uh, that's always encouraged. And and again, thanks again to everyone. Why don't we go with the questions? Speaking of being nice to us, we'll start with our guy, Henry Ward, who had a, who had a lovely tweet, tagged all of us and said that we were a good podcast. Uh, we, we are big Henry Ward fans. On this on the show, and at Henry W. Ward asks, "How long is the list of shooters that have the ability to carry real nuclear gravity and are treated as such? Chase the entire game, top lock, etc." His second question was, "If you guys could dunk, what player's dunk package would you make your own?" I think we should answer this in reverse order, um, like stuffed crust pizza. What do you think, Evan? All right, my dunk package. This is an easy one. Uh, I thought about doing Vince Carter, but I don't know if that dunk package would work well for me particularly. Also, I think it's kind of overdone. So uh, my pick was Nate Robinson. I think that's a good dunk package for my height. Um, I'm not as short as Nate was, I don't think, but um, I would need to be getting up there to be dunking. So that dunk package would be a lot of fun. And I have fond memories of it, both from his time in New York um, and his time in Chicago. So yeah, Nate Robinson for me. 
I think for me, I was never a good two-footed jumper. I always lost a few inches off my vertical, and I did that. I was always better at taking off one foot. So I think my kind of lazy answers based off that would be Giannis and LeBron. Um, I know they're not anything sexy or flashy, but I really like, I don't know, there's something about the power that LeBron has in that cockback when he would get on the fast break in like 2009. Uh, his head would be near the rim and it would just be a joy to watch but I guess historically if we're looking at that sorry I'm answering like four different players Dr. J kind of fits in that mold but my hands were never that big so I'm going to go with Sean Kemp with that too because if I remember he actually didn't have super big hands so he kind of had to cuff the ball and I would totally be that same way so some combination of Giannis Sean Kemp and, and LeBron uh, my answer was easy I went with Shannon Brown specifically Laker Shannon Brown um, the way to describe Shannon Brown dunking so I don't know if you guys have ever played a pickup basketball game where someone dunks and you're like, holy shit, that guy dunked. And it's just like, it pops off. That's like Shannon Brown relative to NBA dunkers. Um, Every time I see Shannon Brown, well, you're like, whoa, like he just gets off the ground so high. He just has such a quick load time back in his prime. And I would just love to catch everyone's attention in a way that even seems unique to the NBA like Shannon Brown. I love the Shannon Brown pick. I used to, when I would do um, um, like fantasy drafts in 2K games, I would always make sure to take Shannon Brown, um, even if I had to reach like a round to get him, because those dunks in transition were so fun to watch and his dunk package was just insane. So love that pick. I was going to say something that you all should treat yourselves to if you haven't seen the video, but I it might have been a preseason game. Maybe it was actually in a game, but Shannon Brown had one of the best missed dunks in NBA history. And uh, interestingly enough, it was over another notable underrated dunker, uh, Jason Richardson. But he takes off like near the free throw line and like Blake Griffin's over him. It's one of them where he hits him and it feels like he's still going up at that point and just barely misses it. So it's literally called Shannon Brown with the greatest missed dunk of all time. Go YouTube it right now. Uh, it'll blow your mind. Shannon Brown is incredible. And Evan, he definitely was one of those guys who was just awesome to play as in 2K. Uh, another one I think of is like Terrence Williams, um, especially like early early career Terrence Williams, where he was just a bundle of athleticism and jumping and dunking and could have had a little bit of a handle to his game. Uh, you'd play online against someone in 2K11. They just put Terrence Williams at point guard and you, you'd have no way of containing it. Uh, those, were, those were definitely the days. But to answer the second question, we kind of talked about this in our scalable offensive traits episode. There are like a bunch of different areas of competency that lend towards being this deadly shooter. We talked about the skills you need before the catch, whether it's, you know, movement, whether it's um, being able to kind of sense where to go, uh, you know, during the catch, how quickly you can fire up, how easily you can contort yourself. I think guys who can kind of twist midair, even if they're not squared, have to be trailed a little bit harder. And then after the catch, uh, you know, what are you going to do to put the ball on the floor, make the make the next pass? Um, if a guy can't really do anything after the catch, you can kind of hang off him a little bit more uh, because if you just close out and sell out to him, you're probably not going to get punished. So all these things kind of play into the overall calculus from the defense um, as, as, as for who needs to be like treated like this absolute threat. What are some names that came to your guys' minds? Well, I don't think you can have this conversation without saying Steph Curry. That goes without saying. I'm not going to dive into that because there's been a lot of ink spilled about Stephen Curry's uh, gravity. But some other names that I was kind of thinking of that 
I'm not 100% sure on. Maybe someone like Joe Harris. Uh, maybe it's just the uh, offensive ecosystem he's in with the Nets that helps him do that. But he's been an absolute flamethrower from the three-point line this year. Uh, Duncan Robinson, I don't think he's been quite as potent as he was last year, but maybe Duncan Robinson. Uh, but one name I actually want to toss out to see if you two agree, because I'm not 100% sure if I would list him here, but I think he's interesting to talk about. Carl uh, Anthony Towns, should he be in this discussion? Probably. Uh, maybe, you know, some centers see that advantage because selling out to him with your big man can be very costly. But yeah, I, I, I'd consider him in that in that category. Um, to answer like Henry's quest, real question, the, the list isn't very long. It's like maybe a dozen or so people. And, and Joe Harris is definitely one of them. Um, he almost like, maybe it's just because he has the perfectly greased context, but he's been a lot more like Chris Middleton than I expected this season. Yeah, he gets chances to do like a little bit of self-creation and obviously he can, you know, move off screens and do all the relocation shooting stuff that makes the Nets kind of sing. He's a perfect complement to the three stars that they have on their roster. And um, I would definitely have him on this list. I don't know if you guys mentioned already, but um, when Clay returns, I think Clay Thompson will be on this list. Um, I would definitely mention Dame as well, although he spends a lot of time on ball, so they don't get to really um, leverage kind of his movement shooting gravity as much as I think they you could if you had um, a roster that better complemented him. <clears throat> and then I think um, the last guy that I'd mention who wasn't mentioned before is... Um, might, might just be on the borderline, but, uh, I think that Seth Curry should be included in this list as well. Um, but yeah, the list is pretty short, um, in terms of how they get treated in games. I think most of the guys that are on this list have that reputation where, you know, they're going to be putting up three point attempts on volume and, and in a diverse variety of, of ways. So they do mostly get treated like that. Although I think, um, in the regular season, I think sometimes teams are kind of unwilling to, to, um, try really hard to stop that. And so like just an effort thing, they'll try different different things than they would if it was a really important postseason game. So they might not top lock or chase that much just because they're going to be throwing different looks in, trying different things and seeing what works. But in a playoff situation, I do think all the guys on this list are going to be treated as like really high gravity nuclear shooters who get chased around constantly and who draw a lot of defensive attention. I'm glad you said Damian Lillard, actually. I'm kind of embarrassed I didn't say him right away because I have him. Uh, I think I have him written down here. But I like him because he's the most different of any of these other shooters we're talking about. Because like you said, he's not necessarily sprinting through tons of screens like somebody like we see uh, Joe Harris, Seth Curry, Steph Curry. Um, but I remember earlier on in the season when the Blazers were looking a little bit more hot and there was a little bit of buzz about Dame Lillard for MVP. I saw so many clips people were posting of him being on ball and just defense is throwing everything at him, right? And then they would still kind of uh, position themselves in a way that they could recover quickly enough. So even though there wasn't specifically elite level movement from him, he still drew immense gravity because of his uh, driving, ball handling, and pull-up abilities. And this next question is actually about the Portland Trailblazers uh, from Stephen K.H. Sui uh, at KHS underscore Stephen. Um, Is lack of point of attack defense the biggest problem for Portland defensively? It looks like they have good team defenders like Rocco and DJJ, but if they are targeted, the defense would just fall apart. Um, I think it's part of the problem, but it's more that I think this team is a mess. And you saw this a little bit in the bubble when they had Zach Collins and Nurk out there. They were like, oh, here's two mobile big men who can fill in for each other on the weak side. 
so therefore, on the pick and roll, we don't have to drop. We don't have to give up these mid-range, these threes that, you know, Steph Curry smoked us with in the 2019 Western Conference Finals. We can get a little bit higher up. We're going to try this. Um, and that's like a good initial rotation. And they got Robert Covington and Derek Jones Jr. to do that weak side rotation. Um, it really is the fact that the subsequent rotations – can be really messy. Um, I think the good thing about drop coverage was that it kind of kept the shell more intact. And when you're going to play in a hedge and recover type pick and roll defense, it's going to require almost every player to at one point get in rotation. Um, And I just don't know if the point of attack defense is necessarily the problem. It's more just like Dame and CJ and Anthony Simons wiring lack of wiring to sink and fill and X out and like cover all this ground because ideally Robert Covington is the low man on pick and rolls, but I was watching them play the nets and like there were times when Simons was the low man. You can't always dictate who the low man is for you in the pick and roll. If Covington is guarding, you know, some guy on the perimeter, let's say he's guarding someone who's just shakes up to the, away from the corner, then he's kind of pursuing him. It's really hard to orchestrate it so that Covington is always the low man. If Nurk kind of does that hedge and someone has to fill and weak side. So (laughs) basically the idea of having a hedge and and low man is, is good in theory, but it's so hard to execute. And and once you do those two rotations, you have to, you you have more rotations to do. Um, So I almost think that, in my opinion, from watching the Blazers, uh, while drop is not a perfect coverage scheme, um, I think they would their personnel suggests uh, one that is better off not getting in rotation, and therefore I'm okay with them giving up those intermediate shots that you do when you drop. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, and I compare this situation pretty closely to kind of what the Chicago Bulls have dealt with and the offshoots of their failure to kind of defend at point of attack so far this season. When you have two guards next to each other who are not known as high-level defenders, um, especially on ball, especially in terms of the micro skills needed to navigate screens, um, you know, you're going to be giving up that that exterior pressure or rather that rim pressure once they beat you off the dribble um, pretty consistently. And so when you do move away from drop, like you said, um, you know, you make it so that those rotations are far less predictable. Um, If you're going to be giving up that pressure pretty much regardless of what you do, why not at least try to make sure that the the crack in this shell the crack in the armor is in a consistent location like you said and so you can you can determine um the the kind of um the kind of rules of engagement there in the sense that you know you want to keep roko as as the low man and so if you play drop you know your rotation is more more consistent in that you know that the guards are going to give up that that pressure and that roko is going to have to slide over to help he can just know that instead of floating around and trying to assess exactly where the break in the dam is going to come and so he can be there to plug it he knows where it's going to be coming and he can just react and do what he does best um, and protect protect uh the rim as a secondary rim protector so I think I would, it's almost like, um, it's almost like however you want to say it, like, um, whether it's their switch to, or their switch away from drop or their poor point of attack defense, like they work completely in tandem. I think that the poor point of attack defense means that they pretty much can't switch away from drop like you discussed. And so I would say that their lack of point of attack defense is probably their biggest 
issue so far. Um, but the reason that their solutions to that problem are so limited are because of the way the roster is designed. And I don't see that changing unless they make a move in the backcourt for a little bit better balance there on the defensive end, especially. I'm going to simplify this for you guys here, right? 2017, 2018, they were better than league average on defense. Pat Connaughton was on their team. Next season, Pat Connaughton's with the Bucks. Bucks all of a sudden have one of the best defenses ever. Not saying anything, but that's an interesting correlation. Well, um, as as a player whose best sport is baseball, it makes sense that he specializes in defense, um, being a pitcher and all. Uh, next question comes from. Let's go. Let 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 let's actually use that to transition into the question from Chris, Chris Amundsen at KLA Hoops. Uh, given the way offensive creators have de- continued to develop at the three-point line and in the mid-range, do you see a future in the NBA for drop coverage? And what viable alternatives are, are available? So this is, Portland's a perfect jumping off point for this question because I do think that drop coverage, if you have a proper drop big, has a floor-raising quality as a defense where to get into a little bit more of an aggressive scheme, you want more guys flying around, more perimeter talent. And I don't think that Portland has that as we've talked about. And so, yes, it's not perfect drop coverage against every team. Um, you're again, you're, you're, you're making it's, it's more like the devil, you know, versus the devil, you don't know where you can know that you're giving up those threes in mid ranges, but if you have to get in rotation and you don't have the talent for it because you know, you hedged or you blitzed, then that might be worse. Yeah. I don't really have anything else um, to add on top of that because I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the strategic, um, I guess, deployment of drop coverage. I would, I guess I would say like, if there was one thing to add on, I don't see this coverage dropping off the face of the earth. um, Definitely without, you know, some pretty substantial rule changes in the way that the paint is protected. Um, I think it'll always have its uses, but I do think that we will start to see a bit of a decline. I think it's already declining a little bit. um, And the teams that are deploying it nowadays are doing it for roster construction reasons because they don't really have a better choice or may not have a better choice at this time. Um, So it's like you said, it's the, the devil, you know, versus the devil you don't and drop will always have kind of a place in, in these kinds of roster construction, um, decisions um you know based off who's on your roster you may have to play drop just because your center is an excellent rib protector but isn't super mobile and and that's the best coverage for you so um i think it'll decrease a little bit as as um the sport of basketball becomes even faster paced um without any rule changes though i don't see it going away and then that kind of leads us into our second question that chris asked and what viable alternatives are available um, that really depends, like we said, on your personnel. Uh, you team, see a team like the Celtics, they're very comfortable getting in rotation um, because they respect that pull-up off the pick-and-roll, and they have Tatum, and they have Marcus Smart, and they have you know Grant Williams coming off the bench. They, they have like guys who are comfortable, and Robert Williams, they have guys who are comfortable in those scramble situations. Uh, so it really just depends on... It's kind of like offense. Like if you have Luka Doncic, you run a bunch of pick and rolls. You you find out what your team excels in. You try to play to those strengths. 
Yeah, that idea of it all depends on your personnel is something that should be key to when you're thinking about running these kinds of systems. Because if you have Rudy Gobert, for instance, you're not going to want to be switching around all the time. You want to keep Rudy Gobert as close to the rim as humanly possible. Whereas, you know, I see a bunch of people being very angry often about the Miami Heat being like, oh, why is Bam always on the perimeter? He's always defending there instead of at the rim. But like we've talked about before, perhaps the defensive uh, variability that they're able to do is going to help them in the playoffs, which is something that we saw that uh, teams like them and the Lakers could do last year, which the Bucks couldn't do. Uh, so, you know, people are always going to roast teams for whatever they run. But, you know, if you have a guy like Bam, try some switching a little bit. If you have Giannis at five, try switching a little bit. But if you have Rudy Gobert, you're probably not going to try switching. and You're probably going to want to drop a little bit more. And we'll get into this. Um, I think there are a couple questions or at least one question that kind of hit in hit on um, where do we see the offensive development of kind of how the game is playing or how the game is played going in the near future. And I think to be honest, as long as the, the league's priorities are the way they are, offense will kind of determine the terms of engagement and defense will respond to some extent. Um, And I think that um, given the way I see rosters evolving, Doing things like what the Celtics are doing, being comfortable in rotation, having a number of like-sized guys that are comfortable switching, um, relying on communication instead of um, you know just sticking with your man and, and brute forcing defense that way, I think will become more popular. But um, we can touch on that obviously more once we talk about offense a little bit later. Yeah, and while we're on the topic of defense, um, we have a question from Bryce Hendricks at Bryce Hendrick fourteen, uh, who's been just doing the most for this draft cycle. Um, how do you guys go about valuing guard defense, special specifically in young players? For me personally, I tend not to value it much unless the player, this is by still a question, by the way, uh, in question is versatile enough to guard up lineups, but small guard defenders can be tough for me to gauge in terms of value. Um, so basically all the stuff that we talked about with the Blazers, uh, do the opposite of that if you're guards. I think the super not sexy answer for me is that off-ball defense is a really good indicator for defensive activity. And from what I checked, I didn't really deep dive it. I kind of did a surgery, uh, cursory search of all this. But it seems like off-ball activity, whether that be steals, blocks, deflections, things like that, seem to remain pretty consistent for a lot of players. I'm especially if you go like uh, per thirty-six or per seventy-five type numbers. Somebody like uh, Jimmy Butler or Matisse Thybul came into the league being able to uh, kind of be monsters off-ball. So when you see those kinds of indicators you can be pretty reasonably positive that they're going to continue being like that and i think that's actually a skill that's pretty difficult to teach if a i don't know of too many players that came in not being off ball impact defenders and were able to really pick that up super well so um you know that's kind of a sloppy way to just kind of you know play basketball on a spreadsheet but i think it's a pretty solid way to start off with a young player Yeah, I think the off-ball defense is more important than the on-ball kind of point of attack defense, mostly because your responsibilities in team defense are going to be asked of you much more often in the course of a game. You're going to spend a lot more time not being one of the four players defending the ball, or rather being one of the four players who is not defending the ball, than you are going to be the single player defending the ball, just by the nature of how basketball is played and the way the ball moves around the court. Um, And so 
not only that, like not only are you going to spend much more time off ball, so those off ball responsibilities are things that you're going to do more often, but it's an easy chance, like you said, to create turnovers and those turnovers are easy buckets on the other end. So to me, that off ball skill, that ability to rotate in team defense is something that is both emblematic of your, your level of feel and, and court awareness, um, and your proprioception and ability to kind of like react, see something and then react to that, that something, um, so not only is it like a skill that is going to provide value on defense, but it provides value on offense and it's kind of uh, an indicator of your level of ability to assess the game and solve the problem. Um, point of attack defense, as we've discussed kind of throughout the episode so far, it's something that I think is important. Um, I think you have to hit a baseline threshold of competency at point of attack defense or else teams are just going to put you in pick and roll and pick you apart the entire night. But um, it is not something that I think is one of the more important skills. I think in my field piece, I ranked it as one of the lower, um, or rather I didn't rank on importance, but I think it's one of the easier things to fix. And it's one of the least valuable, um, single, single skills that you can possess. Um, but when I'm assessing point of attack defense, when I'm scouting a prospect, I'm looking at things like their footwork fighting over screens, especially because I think footwork is harder to fix than physicality. Uh, I am looking at their physicality, but if there's a good excuse why they can't fight over screens, um, and I, I see potential for their ability to, to add weight at the next level, that's less of a, um, I guess a concern for me, although that you can get into trap situations there like Kobe White is a perfect example for me I figured 6'4 6'5 guard even wingspan yeah it's not great that his length is like very mid um but he he's reasonably quick he has pretty good footwork and he'll, he'll fight over screens has not been the case has not been able to add the physicality needed to fight over screens and so the Bulls have become one of those teams that gets put in pick and roll you know a million times a game and just destroyed so um long story short guard defense off ball Pretty important um, and uh, an indicator for other higher level processing abilities. On ball defense, valuable up to a point, but not something I'm like super, super concerned about. And of course, there are always, there's always these examples like Lou Dort locking up Harden um, in that series where you have those like outlier scenarios where you have somebody who's specifically good on ball against one of the most on ball players of all time in Houston, James Harden. Uh, and I feel like some of those times, maybe incorrectly, uh, those head-to-head matchups in the playoffs get credit for like typifying what is good guard defense uh, to the point where, you know, if you have Lou Dort on a team with like uh, against a more egalitarian team, I don't think Lou Dort is this fantastic off-ball defender. Um, he really, uh, PD has the analogy for like these wing stopper or like guard stopper defenders as store credit uh so yeah if you have that james harden that you need to guard great if not you know a guy who i look at in this draft deuce mcbride he's getting a lot of credit for his on ball defense and really what kind of separates and makes me believe in him as a prospect is when he's not guarding the ball he's going to like kind of inch over to the play and like create events um and i think that's just as important as his uh ball hawking Exactly. And I think DeAnthony Melton is another good example from a couple years ago of a guy who affects the game on the defensive end, not just on ball, but also off ball. And so the question becomes like, if he can provide even replacement level value on the offensive end, like you have a guy who, um, you know, is going to 
take a lot of points away from opposing teams because of his defense, especially like, you know, there's nothing you can do to really scheme him out of plays if unless you're going to go so hard at scheming him out of plays on the defensive end that you're just like giving something else up instead. Um, he's a good example. And so if you get up to a baseline level of competency as a shooter, like even just catch and shoot and you can maintain that spacing, like that's good enough on offense where your defense is going to shine and you're going to play a lot of minutes and have a lot of value for a team. So um, defense can provide like high levels of value for a prospect, but um, they, they have to, they have to be competent on the offensive end too. And point of attack just to me isn't as important. So it's, it's really good that Deuce has both because um, the offense is definitely a question mark for me as of right now. Scott, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, Dort because he's been kind of a, a player fascination for me lately, just because if you dive into some of the advanced defensive numbers, which I know can be uh, kind of volatile, I know that a few of them I kind of trust. So when I see that he dips down into the negatives and is like somewhere in the, I don't know, 80 out of 118 guards that I'm searching for, I'm like something weird is going on. Now, I completely understand because a lot of those metrics use uh, on off per 100 type numbers and the Thunder are trying to lose. So, of course, that's going to hurt him. But I do think there's this aspect that it's really flashy that he could stand in front of James Harden in the playoffs. And that is super valuable in the same way as I was talking about with Anthony Davis and Bam Adebayo. If you can go out and defend some of these high level players in the playoffs, good. That's going to be valuable in that situation, but it's not necessarily going to be valuable uh, 60 games of the regular season when you're not going to have one of those high level heliocentric type of creators. Uh, Number one, number two, even if you're a tremendous point of attack defender uh even if you're playing perfect defense that does not result in a steal or a block um the offensive player still even taking a bad shot has a really good chance or at least somewhat of a chance of scoring the ball but if they if you get a steal that's a zero percent field goal percentage from the offense right uh, so that's going to be the absolute best uh defensive thing that you can do and that's probably going to create some kind of a transition attack for your offense so that's going to help you on both sides of the ball so that's why steals are just all that more valuable and a key indicator for defensive impact uh we got a question from gabriel guzman at gabe left brain who are the most defensively scalable players in the nba this is the guys we're talking about who can like you know you, you know the ones like like you just said ad bam Ben Simmons, Covington, Thibault, guys who can make an impact on, but especially off ball, because if you're only can impact the game on ball defensively, you're not very scalable a lot of the time. Yep. If you can defend on and off ball and you are of a size where you can reasonably be asked a size and an athleticism level where you can reasonably ask to switch as well. Um, that's pretty much the best of all worlds. You can guard anybody on the opposing team. Um, you can guard in any scheme because you can do everything, um, physically and, um, yeah, you're just you're you just provide so much more value when um, teams don't have to worry about how you're going to be switched in action or if you can be targeted because you can just handle yourself no matter what and provide value when other team when other um, you know members of your lineup whatever lineup you're in can't handle themselves you can come to the rescue as well. That is peak defensive value for me and scalability um, is is a huge part of that. This one is from Bobby the Burger uh, at Lawrence M. Look out for him on the premium hoops feed soon tips for evaluating players defense especially team defense when you only get to see them play a handful of games so i think this goes into a bigger conversation about how many what percentage of a player's season do you need to watch before you're confident that you know what you're talking about right because there are 82 regular season games if you watch 
eight games, that's only 10% of the season. So at what point are you like, okay, I com- I'm completely confident in what I'm watching. And so I guess my overall point with that is that at some point you have to take some shortcuts. So what I like to do is I go to stats.nba and I just watch through uh, some of those 20 minute segments. I watch every single, um, like if I'm trying to watch a player from the Lakers play defense, uh, then I'll watch all of their opponent's shots and just watch that one player. And I can get through a game's defense in like 15 minutes or something like that. And I at least have a baseline of understanding. So that's my starting point if I feel like I have to blaze through without being able to watch full games. Yeah, that leads me into mine perfectly. Like, um, I think that's a great concern. Like asking yourself, how many games do I need to see of this prospect to get a good feel for how he's playing? I was just talking to PD about this when he was doing the uh, film review review for Usman Garub. I was like, you know, how many games did you watch? And the answer is it depends on what they're asked to do. I think it's important to understand what the player is being asked to do on the defensive end, what the scheme entails and what the team wants to give up and doesn't want to give up. Because if you know their responsibilities and the breadth and depth of those responsibilities, you can determine kind of like a percentage of how much of their film, how many of their skills have you, have you assessed that you can assess? Um, Because like if, if they're, they're not doing something, if they're never asked to do something, you're not going to see it on the tape, no matter how many games you watch, whether it's one or the entire season. Um, And so knowing the responsibilities is important. Just like you, I take some shortcuts here sometimes if I need to just key in on the micro skills of a specific aspect of defense. Um, There are ways where you can watch all of the pick and roll possessions. A player is, uh, um, I guess included as a defender in that's really helpful because you can kind of get a, a quick look, just bang them out as quick as can be. Um, a bunch of possessions where they were asked to defend pick and roll and what scheme or what coverage is being played in those situations and how do they do? Um, so yeah, I'm looking at footwork and knowing their responsibilities, especially is helpful for that because if you know, if they're asked, if they're not asked to do something, you're not going to see it. So, um, yeah, decide how many games you want to watch based off what they're asked to do. That helps a ton. Maybe you need a game or two to figure out what they're asked to do, but yeah. And for me, uh, I just value when they can go off script and make those wow plays um, as opposed to like, you know, the the scripted reads that we all expect players to make. Um, this can be tough. Gary Trent made a few amazing off script reads one game in the bubble and turns out he's not that good of a defender. Uh, so again, you know, Obviously, back everything in context and never be too confident in your opinions, but look for those plays that kind of encapsulate, um, you know, not scripted reactions. Our next question comes from Corbin, who asked seven questions. Um, Shout out Corbin at Corbin NBA. Uh, What player archetype is the most overrated when it comes to roster construction? I'm just straight up stealing your answer here, but is it just like a standstill three and D type player? Like, do we even on ball D? Absolutely. Like I still value whatever Danny green does, um, where he actually is a good team defender as well as an on ball defender. It's like guys like, I guess Contavious Caldwell Pope's added a little bit of a pull-up game, uh, you know, can close attack closeouts, but like, the idea of him like early LA, I think is like the overrated archetype where this guy is maybe looks really competitive on ball defender defensively, isn't really making much of an impact otherwise. And, you know, can make open threes, but isn't really going to make the next pass or shoot off movement or attack a closeout. So it's like, I think that guy, everyone kind of fetishizes three and D and when you just distill it down to just on ball defense and just spot up threes, um, is still a pretty empty player 
skill set, in my opinion. Yeah, kind of the recurring theme here is, and my answer is a little bit different, but the recurring theme here for me is like guys who have one or two skills and they really have to be elite in those skills. Otherwise, the the value is just not that high. Their implementation case is too niche to really be like super, super valuable. My answer is a little bit different. I still think that kind of the the like classic trope of the six man microwave scoring guard is still a little bit overvalued. You do need it, um, especially if you're a team that's going to be playing more egalitarian offense because you need a straw that can stir the drink, especially for bench units um, where maybe your best players aren't involved all the time. But unless you're a team that like has a guy like that who is as good as like Jordan Clarkson level or like prime Lou Williams level, like I think that it's the role itself is important, but it's easier to find these guys than teams think it is. And so like teams that are thinking about drafting Cam Thomas in the lotto, please don't like, I, I just don't think that, uh, that kind of skill set is super valuable. Um, the way that some teams and some scouts still think it is. Um, but I, I do think the correction has been coming in a little bit in terms of how we value that just because you want teams to do more ancillary or players to do more ancillary things and microwave scorers usually don't. So these questions from Anish and Bulat are kind of the same, in my opinion, but we'll kind of cover them all uh, right now. So Anish Namburi asks, if you guys were coaches, what kind of schemes would you look at running both sides of the ball? And then Bulat Guzman um, or or in Brooklyn asks, uh, so what's your ideal starting five roles, offensive archetypes, skill set, and which current starting five is closest to the ideal one? so I think those kind of those questions really work hand in hand. Uh, you guys can maybe talk about what type of roles, offensive archetype skill sets you'd pursue and then uh, flow into Anisha's question about uh, how you would use them. Yeah, that's a really good question. Honestly, I think we could probably do a whole episode on this where like we each um, kind of detail the scheme we would play if we got hired as a coach today. But long story short for me, I touched on it a little bit earlier. I'm looking for versatile defenders who can defend both on and off ball and who have the ability to switch between different matchups because then that means that no matter whether we're getting uh, put in rotation or not, um, we have the ability to kind of handle our own. And as long as the communication is good, the gaps are covered. Um on offense, I'd like to play kind of a modified like Henry ball system that we talk about in the spacing episode. I don't like to run a whole lot of pick and roll, but I do want guys who can pass, dribble, shoot and make decisions, especially quick decisions. 0.5 second or less for me is huge. Um, but um, as somebody who just loves passing big men, I would like to build this all around a seven foot tall plus decision maker, kind of like Nikola Jokic, who can use his size and his understanding of angles to see things others don't and stir the drink in half court with a lot of movement off of that guy and including that guy. I wouldn't want him just setting up as a post hub. Um, so I guess the team that's most similar to what I would like to run is Denver, but I would make some um, significant changes, I think, to how they defend. That reminds me of like that society if so-and-so meme where it just shows like a future utopia because that's basically what I would do too. Um, we kind of, one thing you could say about us is me and Evan is that we have kind of a very similar ideal vision of basketball. I'm going to pick a five-player lineup right now from the NBA to kind of list what I would build right now and run it. Um, I really like the idea of a passing big man, not necessarily has to be the key passer but it needs to be somebody that can kind of stretch the floor both with his passing and his shooting uh but i think my lineup 
uh, would be Jokic at the five. I'd go Anthony Davis at the four because I know, uh, Scott, you've talked about this before, but the four man kind of defines what you're going to be doing. And I really like Anthony Davis at the four because he can defend fives. If Jokic is out there, he can protect the rim. He can step out in the perimeter. Uh, I can't pass up LeBron, so I'm going LeBron with three. Uh, at the one, I'm going Steph Curry because he's nuclear and maybe the best offensive i think ben taylor said it in our last episode yeah we uh had ben taylor on our last episode where he said that stephen curry is probably the most scalable offensive player i think my toughest part about this is coming up with a two guard because there aren't necessarily a ton of two guards that space the floor can do secondary creation and are high impact defenders uh so i kind of maybe went off the beaten path and went drew holiday for my two man so that's my five man lineup so, Cody, I want to ask one follow-up question. I know we're trying to get through all of these or as many questions as we can, so we got to keep it moving, but are you playing drop with that roster? Or are you playing kind of like a soft hedge type thing, blitz, switch in? You know what? Not 100% sure. I think uh, that roster lets you do a few different things. I mean, you could drop. I've seen Jokic do some drop. Uh, Jokic has played uh, up at the level of the pick and roll. I'm not sure, but even with LeBron there, if one of them goes to the bench, you can play him at the four, so you have some more defensive flexibility there. You have Drew Holiday that can cover up to threes and can cover Stephen Curry, so I just think there's a good amount of defensive flexibility, even though two of the players aren't necessarily strong defenders. Yeah, it's funny. When people think about defensive flexibility and versatility, I feel like the classic example is um, like the Heat, where Bam is coming up to the level of the screen, capable of blitzing, a smaller center, and very agile, but um, you can still do defensive versatility without a switching five um, who is going to be blitzing and and covering every aspect of the pick and roll. Um, I guess that's what Anthony Davis allows you, just like kind of Scott has has touched on in the past. Your four-man unlocks a lot of what you can do and, and determines a lot of what you're allowed on the defensive end. I'd like to use, I guess Nets are doing this. Just use James Harden as a playmaking four. Um, that would be my ideal team. Maybe if you, especially if you have like a Steph type to like give him those short roll creation advantages. Uh, I, I'd like to see that. I don't know how, I don't know how you go about amassing that talent. Maybe you can ask the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, so the next question is from Nate Georgie, which is, I, I feel like this question is going to have a similar answer. But that's okay. We love Nate at hoops underscore Nate. Go give him a follow. Um, I happen to have a personal connection with him. Uh, we host North Station Hoops. Okay, here's the question. What potential new player archetypes do you guys see coming forth in the next 20 years or so? If not new, which archetypes do you see becoming more valuable going forward as players continue to adapt through the spacing, movement, and shooting era? Yo. <laughs> I just wrote shoot dribble pass a lot on the outline. Like I just kind of repeated it 50 times. Um, that's the boring answer. Do you guys have any more out of the box answers? I don't think it's super out of the box, but I do think that at some point here, every big man is going to have some level of creation that they're expected to do that are able to do some, uh, you know, like the Nuggets runs, just ongoing dribble handoffs, finding cutters, uh, finding players in the corner, not necessarily like a Jokic level, but if they can at least be moderately impactful creators, I think that opens up a lot for an offense. And I think that's going to start trickling down into different levels of basketball so that all big men are, uh, I don't know, maybe like a Daniel Tice level passer. Uh, I think, I think he's a good passer. I hope I didn't just say something dumb. No, I think he's a really good passer. Um, he's been pretty surprisingly good there, even in lineups where he plays with another big. Uh, shout out Larry Markinen, who asks his other big to do a lot of creation because Lowry does not. Um, kind of on that that note, 
just like you said, I'll, I'll take it even one step further. I think not only will big men have a little bit more of an onus on them to create, not just for themselves, but for others. I think every player will have, um, more of an onus on them to create, not just for themselves, but for others. I think if you can only create for yourself, then the, um, advantages you create are a lot less valuable. And so Scott, the, the shoot dribble pass skill set is perfect to unlock this. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what we're all talking about is that, egalitarian offense is becoming kind of the way of the future. And so everybody's going to be able to, uh, everybody's going to need to be able to make quick decisions, um, 0.5 second or less ball. Um, and obviously you'd like a guy who's good enough to bail you out in playoff situations and be that heliocentric kind of creator. But, um, offensive burden will be spread a lot more around as players become more advanced as pass dribble shoot, regardless of size or position. And that leads us perfectly into a question from Tim Ross at the Exia Ross Zero zero. How to rate passing? Difference between Trey Young and Draymond's passing, and this led to a pretty heated Discord argument that we'll get into. Uh, the reason I bring this up is to ask about guys like Anthony Edwards and whether he shows signs of a high-level passer or just a guy who can read it and attack advantages. Um, so at first, I was like, "Yeah, that put Thad on the Warriors. Put put Thaddeus Young on the 2017 Warriors. He is slicing and dicing defenses." a la Draymond Green, there is no difference. It's basically what I said, and that was kind of foolish, but it made Cody a little stormy tea kettle um, as a result. So, yes, three on four, the advantage is obvious. Thad and Draymond, not too big of a difference, but where Draymond kind of separates himself is making proactive passes. I think uh, Prep to Pro actually had a pretty long segment about this, about reactive versus proactive passes. I think they were talking about like Jonathan Kuminga and him being more of a reactive passer. Draymond's a proactive passer. Um, you're going to see stuff. He's going to see stuff before it even develops. Uh, you're going to wonder how he saw it. Uh, and I think that adds a few extra points per possession, whereas Thad Young, he'll make, he'll, he'll re- kind of react, you know, he'll see the right play. You'll see it on the screen. Thad makes the Craig dump off or kick the shooter. It's 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 what the defense gave to him. Um, but it was kind of obvious from a bird's eye view compared to Draymond, where you're just like, what? Uh, <laughs> so I guess, is that kind of where you guys are in line with? And where do you think Anthony Edwards is on the spectrum? I'm not going to speak to Anthony Edwards right now. I want to talk about uh, Thaddeus Young and Draymond's passing at the moment. Uh, there's a comparison I like is I was listening to a reaction pod from Shea Serrano about Mortal Kombat and the way that he described Joe Taslam, the actor who played Sub-Zero's fighting style, is that he just plays with a level of violence that you don't necessarily see in other fighting movies. Like it's a lot more so usually fighting movies are cerebral and they're action packed and there's a lot of moving around. Whereas the guy, uh, Joe Taslam is like, I'm going to beat you down into a bloody pulp right now. And that's how I see Draymond's passing versus Thaddeus Young's where Thad kind of has this slower, uh, more methodical. I'm going to look for openings to appear, maybe kind of a Rajon Rondo type of passing thing. And he's really good at hitting players in those situations. Whereas Draymond, like if there is an inch of space, he is like, I am not a great offensive scorer. I am not great at finishing at the rim, but I'm going to charge at the basket and make you respond. And in that time, I'm also going to make a split second decision that's going to open up somebody for a teammate, open up something for a teammate. And so I think that's the main difference between them. And like you said, Scott, I think that squeezes out a bit more value from uh, Draymond Green just because he's able to uh to to make the defense go into rotation a lot more than that is 
Yeah, Draymond definitely is the kind of passer who imposes his will on you. Um, I think some of that is obviously the way he's wired and the way he was developed, especially like Michigan State in his early Golden State years. Um, Thad is definitely more patient. Um, He takes opportunities when they come to him. I think a lot of that is down to how they're utilized and the context around them. Like Scott mentioned, the context when Dre was dicing teams up in short roll was like there was so much space on the court due to the way that that offense functioned and the fact that he played alongside Steph Curry um he had a lot more room to operate and they forced the issue with him like they got him going in short roll um Thad is a lot more reliant on being set up on like the low block or at the elbow working his way into his post game and then whatever opening like his his forcing of the issue through his post usage um, opens up, he's going to find that opening and he, he's going to react to it. Like Scott said, Draymond is a little bit more of a proactive passer because he is forcing the issue. And so um, he he's the one bringing the engagement to a head. He's the one who's going to decide what happens there more often than not. Um, but it's really tough to compare them just because I don't think Thad has ever been used in a situation quite as good as what Draymond has. And I would love to see him used in something that's a little bit more open because he sees the game in a way that I think he could be proactive too. Um, that said, like when you're a big who's making these passing reads, I don't know how much more valuable the di- like how much the difference between Thad and Dre matters in the grand scheme of like a single game, a season, a playoff run. Um, maybe you're getting a couple more like easy looks in half court than you would with Thad, just because Dre is uh, imposing himself in that way, but. I don't know. Um, when when you're not really a dribble shoot player, you're just a, a pass um, player more more than anything. Um, the utility of your passing ability is slightly lesser than somebody who is unpredictable in that way. Wait, before we continue, did did uh, Cody? Did you just use uh, Celtics great Rajon Rondo as an example of a reactive passer? Yes. Oh, yes, I did. Oh boy. <laughs> I think okay. So Rondo is a good passer, but I do think that. Uh, you know, the Rondo assist, another Ben Taylorism, is from Rondo waiting for some things to develop, and he's really good at finding some of those openings, right? But he is kind of like Draymond in the sense that he ne- doesn't necessarily have the same uh, level of offensive finishing skill that's going to bend a defense. But yeah, I am going to compare the two. Well, he had a lot more finishing skill when he was in his prime. Um, those long strides made it really easy for him to get into the paint, and he's so tricky with that layup package. And the layup package parlays itself into a bunch of different like passing windows and opportunities, a bunch of different deliveries, deliveries in a way that made him so unpredictable that um, I, I do think he like the Rondo assist is a classic example. And he he does just fine on those reactive passes. And he makes them a lot. I, I think to say that he's not proactive is a little bit of a uh, it's a little bit tough on him, in my opinion. Um, I think Rondo is a very good proactive passer. Yeah, I just think when you talk about like Draymond making finding those little margins that lead to an extra few points per possession that most players don't. Um, I think that's basically how Rondo stayed relevant in the NBA is just whether it's through fast break, whether it's through scheme, he is going to find those little slivers way more than point guard X. And I think that's why he's still in the league. Yeah. Like I think we've seen it, the effect that that has maybe, maybe we answered our own question here or like, I guess my question in the sense that how valuable is that, um, those kind of proactive reads and, and those extra couple possessions with easy looks per game. Um, Rondo and what he's added to the Clippers so far this season might just be that. Um, so we'll see, I guess, in the playoffs how valuable that is. That'll be an, an interesting kind of referendum on the, the whole idea. 
It's also super dependent on context, right? Because Rondo was on the Hawks and like wasn't finding. They were trying to treat him as like a conventional backup point guard, and he wasn't, you know, boosting the points per possession that much. Um, I think it really takes a concerted effort to put like Draymond or Rondo into those positions to maximize how much they can potentially boost an offense on the margins. Um, So maybe it's not worth, (laughs) you know, having to space the floor for Rondo all the time. We'll see how, you know, Anthony Davis cooks Marcus Morris at center, uh, things like that. But it is a little bit of a trade-off, but I do think for, you know, you know, if you can kind of put them in that environment, it does, for better or worse, it does sometimes really pay off on the margins. Um, and to answer Anthony Edwards, I think he's a reactive passer, but I think that's okay. Uh, that'll be my full answer. Uh, this is from Vajtek Juan Toscano-Anderson Stan account. In your opinion, should Matisse Thibel's target position be power forward, usually surrounded by at least two good shooters to make him playable in the playoffs? How to get more than 15 minutes of meaningful play out, out of him in this phase? Uh, I think you should just play him. Yeah, play, whatever it takes to play him. Play Matisse Thibel. That's it. Like, <laughs> I don't. I don't think we need to overthink it. Like, his defensive impact is ridiculous. It's completely off the charts. And I am on the island that he is the best perimeter defender in the NBA right now uh, by a pretty long shot. Uh, I'm coming up with another defense article here at some point, and I was putting together some graphs. And uh, my partner, who has some academic training and stats, was looking at one of my uh, box and plot uh, graphs, and she was like. Oh, is that a mistake pointing to it? And I was like, no, that is Matisse Thibel. So he's ridiculous. He breaks charts on defense. Play him. I will say, like, kind of to break down the specific deployment of him in the Sixers' current context, I think we're all in agreement that they just need to play Matisse Thibel. I think the best way to play him, given the way the Sixers are currently constructed, is probably at the nominal four. Um, it's it's kind of a cop-out, but like the Sixers are big enough that they can be kind of positionless. So I don't know if I'd call him necessarily a four. Maybe he doesn't get listed as the fourth player in the starting lineup when it's announced. But um, having him play next to Joel Embiid, um, when Embiid is on the court especially, will really help because Joel can, can and will pull up from three. And so that's going to take a little bit of the onus off of uh, Matisse Thibel to to add that spacing element, at least while he still works on the jump shot. And then um, Embiid is going to lock down the paint. Uh, Matisse Thibel can kind of gamble and do what makes him so special on the offensive end, um, play a little bit more free safety because the the defense is covering a bit more of the court with Embiid there. And that kind of, you know, this question does kind of hit at something that I thought about when uh, Thibel was in like rumors to be traded to the Raptors. Um, if Kyle Lowry went to the Sixers, can you imagine like how terrible offensively a starting lineup of like Van Vliet, uh, like, OG Ananobi, Thibel, Siakam, and a center would be. Maybe you have to go like five Siakam at the five just to like have any semblance of positive offense. Um, but like there is a point where he needs to be surrounded by a certain threshold of offensive punch to like be, you know, because you know, he's maybe gonna make the occasional three, he can make attack the occasional closeout, but he's not gonna give you much juice on that end. And so like I'm just glad that we never had to watch that offense because I already have enough trouble watching the Raptors offense this year. Can you imagine? I'll say, can you imagine being a perimeter player trying to score against Van Vliet, Ananobi, and Matisse Thibel, though? Like, okay, dear God, I I wish that would have happened. That would have been sick. Yeah, that would have been an... I'm, I'm... 
relieved that we didn't have to watch that offense. I'm very sad we didn't get to watch that defense. Every single game they play would be just an absolute and total rock fight. It would be really gross to watch, but um, the defense would be would be pretty impressive for sure. Yeah, that's that's kind of just Matisse Thibel. Um and uh this question, we're gonna go circle back to our guy Corbin. Um he gave us a lot of work. Rank these players in their primes, please. Latrell Sprewell, Monte Ellis, aka Have It All, Michael Beasley, B E Z Beasley, uh, or Terry Rozier, scary Terry. Also, maybe more seriously, how do you think we'll reflect on Westbrook's career, especially in regards to his triple doubles? Um I'm, you know, we'll start with Westbrook. I, I realized that I kind of soured on Westbrook the past couple of years. Maybe I just let the noise about him get to me, his MVP season or whatever, his triple doubles. Um, I lose some of my enjoyment of NBA when I can't appreciate Russell Westbrook, um, when I can't appreciate his historically outlier motor, when I can't appreciate just his badass motherfuckerness. Um, and just his fire that he brings to every sometimes meaningless regular season game. Like, he's just awesome. I don't know how else to explain it. Yeah, I I hope that we... I can start with Westbrook too because I think this is a really good question um, and it hits on what motivates how you watch basketball and whether or not you're really enjoying yourself. I think it's easy to take the kind of consensus narrative that... His triple doubles are great and they're fun to watch, but they don't affect winning. I don't necessarily know how true that is. I think it's true to some extent, but I think it gets kind of overblown. Um, But I hope that we remember Westbrook as just like a fierce competitor, a human highlight reel. Um, I love his like avant-garde kind of like fashion sense. That's been a great time. Um, he, He just has fun with it. Like he worked hard to get here and he's enjoyed it and he puts on a show every night and that's, that's become a little bit undervalued. Um, and just like as the Wizards probably make a, uh, an appearance, at least in the play-in game this year, um, I hope he can put on a show um, for a team that hasn't had a whole lot to celebrate in the last couple of years. Um, I think they're, gonna, they're not going to be complaining. Wizards fans aren't going to be complaining about those triple doubles, so you shouldn't either. Just have fun. Enjoy Russell Westbrook while he's here. Scott, I don't know if you did your list, um, but I'll go ahead and just say mine uh, real quick. I would go Monte Ellis first, Latrell Sprewell next. Uh, Beasley third, and then Terry Rozier fourth. In honor of the dunker spot, I'm going to power rank those four players uh, from worst to best. So I am going Michael Beasley. I'm going Terry Rozier. I'm going Monte Ellis, and I'm going Latrell Sprewell, who, if you look back at the 90s, you saw he actually fired off a good amount of triples before it was super popular. So I think we can call him Latrell Threewell. Was that the dunker spot shout out, making a quote unquote great pun? That and power ranking backwards. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I hope that I didn't choke by putting Sprewell first. We're putting Cody in the penalty box. Cody, five minutes for, for punning. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I didn't rank them. <laughs> um, so next question is from Halliburton Ernie at Sam Hinkie's Ghost, a personal friend of mine. Who are the NBA player equivalents for the four main Seinfeld characters? Um, one that we agreed on to beginning was to begin was Chris Paul is George Costanza. I think all of us had Chris Paul is George Costanza. Yep, I think Chris Paul is George Costanza was pretty clear cut for me. If anybody has any better suggestions for George, um, 
I would love to hear him because I think Chris Paul is a great one. But my list was uh, Alexei Pokusevsky as Kramer because you just never know what he's going to do next. Um, obviously, Chris Paul as George Costanza. LeBron as Jerry because he's the main character um, of the league to me. And Rudy, Go- Rudy Gobert as Elaine. Um, I think that one is uh, interesting because Wikipedia described Elaine as kind of like vain but with a good heart and uh gobert's like complaints about like accolades and like his his social media posts and the weird like pandemic mic thing like i don't know just makes sense to me i think rudy gobert is elaine and i put uh elaine as pascal siakam i don't know i just feel like she just has these unfortunate bouts in her life and doesn't always deserve it so like Pascal, like spinning an ISO and missing a shot is just a very Elaine moment, um, like in a crunch time situation to me. Yeah, Pascal's um, spinning in half court, like, and when it doesn't work, kind of reminds me of uh, the Elaine Bennis, like, worst dance ever from that episode where she just does that terrible dance. That's kind of what it looks like to me. <laughs> um, but when it works, it works. Uh, spicy P, spin. It's a good time. Yeah, I don't I don't have anything too much more to add. I just thought maybe Anthony Edwards for Kramer because he brings just so much joy and he I don't know, I think of that locker room after the uh Chris Finch's first win and he was just kind of sitting in the background and missed everyone dumping water bottles on Finch. So he's like, Oh, I'm gonna come like twenty seconds later and dump a water bottle. I'm like, that's a very Kramer moment. <laughs> yeah, the the moment where like one week, I think for GQ, he's talking about how he can be like a goat at any sport if you give him some time to train, kind of like the Batman of like playing whatever sport you ask him to play. Um and he's talking about like how he used to be just a fantastic baseball player, he was talking about how he can throw ninety plus um with like a couple months to prepare. But then then a couple weeks later, Alex Rodriguez joins a group to buy the Timberwolves and becomes the Timberwolves owner, Anthony Edwards' team. And Anthony Edwards is like, who's Alex Rodriguez? Like, I don't know who that is. But he's like talking about how he's just a fantastic baseball player. That's a Kramer moment for sure. Another Kramer candidate I just thought of now is Jimmy Butler, um, specifically his espresso machine in the bubble. Uh, that just seems like Kramer... You know how Butler charged $20 for his teammates for a cup? That just screams of Kramer driving to Michigan to get double the deposit on his uh, recyclable cans. I think the character I had the toughest part even conceiving of was Jerry. How would you describe like Jerry's personality in a way that could match up with an NBA player? So I put Joe Ingles. He always just seems to have his composure. Um, you know, he'll be a notorious trash talker, and he always like seems to have like a quick comeback in those situations, you know, he never, he never seems very rattled. And so that was kind of Joe Ingles for me as Jerry. I picked LeBron as Jerry because he's kind of like the main character of the NBA in the same way Jerry, like the show kind of revolves around Jerry, but also because uh, LeBron is like corny in a way that I think matches up with Jerry. Like he's probably the least intentionally funny member of the group, but he's still very unintentionally funny. So you always get a good laugh kind of watching LeBron's um, social media. And that's kind of what it reminded me of. Why do they call it Ovaltine, LeBron James? This question, speaking of funny shit, is from Daniel Olinger. Uh, I am not part of this group chat, but apparently this is a big thing in that group chat. Um, and they just debate it endlessly, the Evans in about hoops. Uh, so pick two. They will defend you. The rest is coming to kill you. And there are nine party parties involved. Uh, the first party is 50 Hawks. Second. Uh, 10 alligators or crocodiles, maybe a combination of both. Can't tell by the picture. Three bears, 
seven cows or, you know, bulls, whichever. One guy with a gun, looks like some sort of hunting rifle. Uh, 15 wolves, 10,000 rats, five gorillas, and four lions. So you have to pick two of those groups. They will defend you, and the rest is coming to kill you. So the I think the best part, I want to make one slight clarification. I don't think I'm in the group chat that Dan was talking about either, which just goes to show that if this picture ever gets posted in your group chat, no matter who you're in a group chat with, group DM, whatever, could be a professional Slack, this will get debated for at least an hour. Um, and you will learn a lot about the people that you are grouped up with. Um, so I have litigated this to some extent, and I've, so I've had some time to think about this. Shout out to every group DM that I'm in that has discussed this. You guys have given me the uh, practice and honing of my method, methods that I need. My pick has got to be the hawks and the wolves. You've got the air game and the ground game covered. Um, the wolves are a great bang for your buck in, in this sense because you're getting 15 wolves for one of your spots. Um, I considered the lions here as well, but 15 wolves, like that's just going to beat four lions for me. Like that's just just a cost benefit analysis. Um, I I think they could like the, the wolves will coordinate with each other probably better than the lions would as well. Um, wolves tend to run in packs. That would be pretty cool. They'll team up and it'll be a really well regimented affair. Um, I was tempted to pick the gorillas, but yeah, like the, the wolves are just like the number of wolves you get is a real decider. And then, if I'm hurt, I can go uh, full Lord of the Rings bailout uh, deus ex machina here and the Hawks can simply float me above the battleground long enough to recover um, and finish the fight. So uh, the Hawks are very underrated here in, in the results that I've seen in the past. Fly, you fools. I think the wild card for me is 10,000 rats only because I cannot conceptualize what 10,000 rats look like on the battlefield. Um, maybe I've just played too much Dishonored, but if you get near a bunch of Plague Rats, you're dead at about two seconds, and that's maybe about 100. We're talking 10,000 rats. Um, yeah, I, 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 maybe maybe, maybe they would all just get, maybe they would all just die in like the first minute. <laughs> but I really think that, you know, Evan, you've kind of said, told me when I told you this, that like rats don't always work in tandem. They're kind of selfish animals um, to an extent. And that may be so, but I, I, at this point, I don't like my chances anyway. So I want to just try to catch lightning in a bottle with the high, high, high rats upside um, that they all somehow band together. Uh, <laughs> and then my other pick, like you said, I'm going with the value play. I'm going give me 15 wolves. This is such a tough exercise here. I just don't see any possible choices that you pick that are actually going to help you win. I think it's a a lost cause no matter what. And I think the rats are kind of like the Trey Young of this exercise where they can come flying in with some strong offense, but defensively, like, what are they going to do? Like, what are they going to do to 15 wolves? They're just going to run over it. Because I'm imagining, like, everything that's trying to kill you, like, they are stopping at nothing to kill you. So a few rat bites, whatever. I'll run right over that. So because of that, I need, like, a strong shield around me of, like, size. I don't know what I'm going to do about the rats. But uh, I think I'm going to roll with you. Actually, convinced me uh both of you i'm going with the wolves i think that is a pretty valuable pick with 15 of them but i'm also going with the five gorillas uh just because i don't know man gorillas are just like look at that picture like that thing's got some like quads and some forearms and biceps like i'm i'm going with the musculature here and you know five of them that seems a little bit better than a lion i feel like a gorilla could hold itself up against a lion and i get one more so that's pretty cool and there's two more than the bears that's cool uh so yeah that's my pick I'm starting to think that you uh, might have seen King Kong versus Godzilla too many times. 
Um, I actually, uh, I did not, but YouTube keeps sending me spoilers, so I don't see, they know if there's a point to go see it anymore. Yeah, and speaking of movies that you maybe don't have a point of go seeing, uh, that leads us to our last question of the day. Uh, sorry if you didn't have, if we didn't get to yours, sir, but we wanted to keep this around an hour. Anyway, last question, again from Gabriel Guzman at Gabe Left Brain. What is Cody's quick review of Mortal Kombat? I will make this quick and spoiler free. The movie is bad. It is really, really bad. And I don't want people coming at me with like, oh, so you want The Godfather. No, I just want like a league average movie that like makes some semblance of sense and doesn't have just a bunch of characters that are props for pushing forward other characters. Like there's a new non-canonical character that's in there that has a family. That family's only purpose is to inspire this character to go and do something special. That was a dumb choice. Um... I don't know. It seemed like they were going to go with the cool direction with him, but last second they pivoted into something that just made absolutely no sense. Some of the fights are really cool. I wish they had gone just completely around Scorpion and Sub-Zero because I thought the first 15 minutes or so were just riveting. And Joe Taslam, the actor that played Sub-Zero, was magnetic, and I loved every scene that he was in. But uh, it just it made no sense at all and i feel bad for anyone that hasn't followed mortal Kombat lore and tried to watch it because there's a lot of things that are going to make absolutely no sense so bad movie wow you really finished that movie fatality you guys got to stop muting your mics people won't realize i'm hilarious um anyway that does it for our second mailbag pod uh thank you all for submitting questions again sorry we didn't get to everybody's um we actually got more than we expected honestly uh, but if you did enjoy our mailbag pod, uh, if, if, if it was a five-star pod for you, uh, we do recommend and even encourage that you leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We are so close to 32, and you all know what happens when we get to 32. Yeah, I really thought this was going to be the week that I had to out my worst ever takes. Um, I sent a message to the fellas in our Discord channel last night. Um, and I think I tweeted it out too. I can't keep getting away with this. The gif from uh, Jesse from Breaking Bad, um, where he says, like, Walt can't keep getting away with it. You guys need to make me out these takes because they're bad and it'll be fun to discuss. Um, and we are like four reviews away. So review and um, yeah, yeah. Um, put me to the fire it'll be a good time that sounds great uh i i predict we'll get to that next episode and our listeners will not disappoint us so thanks for again for listening and uh as as the great mark schindler says most importantly have a good rest of your day <laughs>